What's up, guys? This is Pat, and before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder to please hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. Also, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. All right, here we go. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Posh. I'm Pat. And we are super excited today to be chatting with the first CEO and founder of Netflix, uh, Mark Randolph, uh, who is also now an author of the book, That Will Never Work, which, by the way, is amazing, Mark. You know, I have it right here. Pat and I both read it. Fantastic book. And thank you for taking the time to be with us. Oh, thanks. A pleasure to be with you. Thanks uh, for having me on. Yeah. Um, One thing I do want to note, you know, the book does a really great job of just kind of going through the whole story of the origin, the origin story of Netflix and and sort of your experience as the CEO up until, you know, you leaving. So I do want to encourage folks to to read that book because it is a great supplement to our conversation today, um, which, you know, we really wanted to take this time to like dive into some of those pivotal moments and your mindset around some of those things. Um, But, but just to kind of get a backstory, um, Tell us a little bit about, you know, your upbringing. I know you're born and raised in New York. Um, what were you like as a kid? What, what kind of stuff were you into? Yeah, it's kind of funny. You know, when you're growing up, you don't even think about this stuff. And then only years later, do you look back and go, gosh, were there, were there glimmers of who I am now, like emerging back then? Um, and certainly, I think so. I mean, for one is I've had this lifelong passion for the outdoors, you know, whether it's, you know, climbing or mountain biking or hiking or surfing or all that stuff. And that's certainly started very, very early. So it's important because, you know, figuring out the kind of things that you love that really are your happy places is an important thing to figure out early, ideally. But, you know, in terms of the entrepreneurship bug, I think that was there pretty early as well, early as well, that I was always someone who, when they saw a problem, kind of would immediately begin spinning on how do I solve it. I kept a little notebook uh, of all my inventions uh, where I noted down all kinds of little ideas I had that I thought might be cool and made little sketches of them. Uh, One time when I was digging through my, uh, uh, my dad's stuff, I found in there a patent he had been issued years, years before that he had invented something and gotten a patent. And for some reason, I thought that was the coolest thing I could imagine. And I kind of vowed, I must have been seven or something, that one day I wanted to earn a patent. Um, And then kind of amazingly, I mean, here, you can see the video one. You guys can't all see that because it's on my audio. But right here, I'm pointing to it, is I was actually granted three patents um, uh, years and years later. Wow. But they're they're kind of lame patents. They're business process patents rather than like uh, technical invention patents. But listen, I'm, I'll take what I can get. But anyway, you know, in, but forever I was kind of that way. You know, even like in, in, in high school and in college, I was always the guy who was starting a club or I was launching a magazine or doing a new publication or putting on a show. I just was compulsively driven to see openings and want to, drive trucks through them you know mark i've read your book i've watched a few of the things that you've talked about and 
in those stories, I see a lot of you just doing and doing and doing and doing. And I don't know whether or not you had a long-term vision. I think a lot of people at 21, 22, 23, and maybe even before they hit 30 probably don't. I know Pat and I are probably in that same boat a lot where we're just trying a bunch of different things, seeing what sticks, right? But one thing that I think that was really interesting to me that has almost always been consistent for you was that you loved the outdoors, you loved those trips that you took, and that was a big teaching experience for you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about those trips and what that taught you early on, but also later when you became a founder and CEO? Yeah, it's true. I mentioned you know a moment ago that uh, outdoors has always been a big part of my life, but it's not just outdoors. These aren't just strolls in the park. Uh, these are... Um, adventures, I guess you'd call them, which is that experience of going out and doing hard things. Uh, you know, climbing is a good one, doing rock climbing or ice climbing or mountaineering, doing caving, just doing things where there's a chance, there's a possibility a visit to a hospital could ensue. Um, and one of the things you get out of that is this realization that you can really be in the moment that most of these activities, the thrill comes from when you're doing them, you are totally transfixed with what's happening at that instant. There's not a lot of what's going to happen in the future or what have I done in the past. And it turns out to be a really great balance to the entrepreneurship, which in fact is a tremendous amount of what might go wrong in the future and what did we do right. um, in the past? So that alone, finding that initial balance in life was a big accomplishment. But the other thing was that I was fortunate enough when I was young to get involved with this organization called the National Outdoor Leadership School or Knowles. And they did at the time, they do a lot more now, but at the time they did these month long expeditionary courses into wilderness areas, mostly into the mountains. And it was a leadership school. And the way they taught leadership was by taking one, breaking the group into smaller groups of five or six people and appointing one person leader of the day. And they were the leader of the day. They made decisions about when we left, what route we took, when you stopped for a break, whether you stopped to fix someone's bad uh, blister or whether you said, let's wait out until the break. Um, all those questions you had to decide, you had to keep your group together, you had to communicate them. And at the end of the group, the back of the pack, you had the instructor who was there to kind of watch, make sure you didn't take the group off a cliff, but more importantly, to help at the end of the day, deconstruct how you did. And I started doing that when I was 14. Um, and I did it again at 15. And then I eventually began working for the school as an instructor when I was in, in college and a little bit thereafter, eventually being in charge of these entire month-long groups, uh, full responsibility myself. But the point is, I was learning leadership by doing it, not by reading about it in a book, not by being taught it, not by doing case studies, but by actively being in a, put in a position of real responsibility where the decisions I made had real consequences and then finding out less than eight, 10 hours later how I did. I mean, you saw the implications of what happened if you let the rest break go on for an hour and a half. You saw the implications if you took a wrong turn, if you chose a bad place to camp, if you left too late, if you didn't stop to eat, and if you didn't communicate clearly. 
And little by little, you gained more and more responsibility and the decisions became more and more um, uh, real. Communicating with clarity about decisions I wasn't entirely sure about myself. And those are all the exact same things you do when you have to lead a startup. You mentioned having this like bug, entrepreneurial bug early on, like around that age when you're in high school. Um, and it can often turn into a dangerous thing when it, you know, it comes time to, to choose a path, choose a career, quote unquote. Um, cause oftentimes, you know, you may, you may try to start a business or, um, just kind of be in a leadership position from the get go, but you know, it might not work out for, for many reasons. So was there anything like that you had your eyes set on that you would potentially go down like a, like a, some sort of career or profession or was like starting a business and being an entrepreneur the, the only way for you? No, I was clueless. I mean, as I think most people, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to do in my life. I didn't really get any of that real clarity until I was almost 30. Um, and it, it's, it's certainly advice I give to young people all the time, which is chill out. Like you do not need to know your whole future path that when you're 16 years old, you know, I, I have some young friends of my kids who, you know, back in fifth grade, they'd go, I want to be a veterinarian because I love cats. And you kind of roll your eyes and God, <laughs> God bless them. Two of them are veterinarians now. And I go, that's fantastic. If you know what you want to do, and it carries through. But for most of us, we have no idea. We're trying things out. We're experimenting. We're doing different experiences. And it's a long, circuitous path. And it was certainly no different for me. I was a geology major in college. But I had no intention of working as a geologist. I just thought it was cool. I did so much time in the mountains. It was interesting. And we got to do field trips. You know, How could you not choose a major based on something as reasonable as that? So one thing I'm still curious about is, you know, you had that opportunity to do, uh, you know, that outdoor adventures and really learn leadership by doing it. A lot of people, you know, and I talk about people that are in their mid twenties, even, you know, mid thirties or whatever, who want to be entrepreneurs, who want to be leaders, but haven't had those types of experiences, whether it was because they never had the opportunity or at the moment they didn't know, but I still don't think it's too late. Right. What do you think that those people can do now to actually do things and to be leaders as opposed to just listening to our podcast or reading your book or, you know, consuming other sorts of entrepreneurial content? What are the tangible things people can really do on a daily basis that will set them on the right path to becoming entrepreneurs? Well, listen, if you want to be an entrepreneur, for God's sake, just do it. Stop the belly aching about I need to raise money or I need to be graduate or I need my MBA or my computer science. Bullshit. You can, there's no reason you can't stop. Again, you learn leadership by doing it. You learn entrepreneurship by doing it. You can learn things in school which augment those experiences. You can learn accounting and you can learn some best practices, but fundamentally you have to do it. And the way to do that is to start early and to scale your aspirations to your abilities. So if you are in ninth grade, you cannot start a, um, a company that makes a next generation CAT scan machine. Uh, but there's no reason you can't set up the equivalent of a lemonade stand. You know, you, there's no reason you can't have an online store that sells Beanie Babies. There's no reason you can't start a nonprofit which is designed to deliver food to neighbors. I mean, these are all things you can just do. 
And you'll begin just the same way I did when I was hiking and backpacking. You'll learn by making minor mistakes. You'll learn how hard it is to recruit someone to come work with you, but you'll eventually figure it out because you have to do it. You'll learn what happens when you're trying to sell something and people say, I'll pay you back later. You'll learn the ability of what it, that there's things called spoilage and there's things called returns. And you'll do that not because you learned it in a class. You'll have experienced it at a scale and consequence that you can manage yourself. And in fact, the single biggest attribute these days for being a great entrepreneur is being clever enough to figure out how you can test and try and do your ideas without them turning into a big ordeal so that you can do them with limited means and limited time and limited resources and limited experiences. Talk to us a little bit about what you ended up doing after college, because I feel like whatever that was, was probably probably foundational to, to kind of the rest of your career. So tell us a little bit about those days. So it's interesting. You know, I, I, <laughs> there's a, a job that I had, I didn't even talk about very much, but for some weird, uh, uh, quirky thing, someone sent me out to Colorado to run kind of a resort that was in a ghost that was had was made out of a ghost town that like that one huh uh it was a it literally was an old ghost town that had been built it had the boom days in the 1890s and it was now nothing but old cabins but it had a saloon it had a dance hall it had a restaurant that was my first job out of college and it was like a little practice business uh but wow is that exciting and scary at the same time. And you learn things very viscerally. You learn cash flow. You learn marketing. You learn what you can say on the posters that you put up in the nearby town that get everyone to make the drive or not. You learn about what happens when you mix together. Pardon me if I'm slightly politically incorrect, but this is based on observation. What happens if you mix together alcohol, pool tables, and women and you get fights? Um, so you, you learn that stuff. You learn when you need a bouncer, you learn how much beer to buy. This is not stuff that I still use, but boy, you indirectly, you learn it all the time. But anyway, the real beginning of my career after that weird experience for a year was I got this job at a music publishing company. And my job was basically to follow the CE around with a notebook everywhere. I sat in every meeting, I came with him to every sales call. And basically, if he said, uh, Jim, get me those numbers by Wednesday, I would write down, make sure Jim gets in the numbers by Wednesday. Um, and if he made a commitment, I then make me the reminder. Or he'd say things like, okay, I'll make sure I send you. And I go, oh, shit, okay. And that means I've got to send that stuff. I think now it has a glorified um, title. I think you call that chief of staff. But it's basically like the gopher in a way. But anyway, uh, this this mail this music publishing company was pretty diverse. It had a lot of divisions, and one of its divisions was mail order. Uh, and I'm creating a vision which is probably grander than it was because the mail order division was exclusively one sentence printed in the back of every music songbook they sold that said. For a list of more great Cherry Lang songbooks, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to P.O. Box so-and-so. And for some bizarre reason, which even now, you know, 40 years later, I can't understand, I found that fascinating. And so I said, I want that job. 
And then, because the person left and he said, fine, you did a great job for me, take that job. And so it started out that I would go to the Xerox machine and make a copy of the more great Cherry Lane songbooks, stick it in the self-addressed stamped envelope and drop it in the mail. And if an order came in, I'd go to the warehouse and pick, pack and ship it. And I got so curious and I said, what happens if I do it in color? What happens if I do a two-page insert? What happens to catalogs? How about mailings? I taught myself about mailing lists, about fulfillment software. I learned direct marketing by doing it and found that I love direct response stuff. And that was the moment. I mean, I wasn't quite 30. I was in my mid to late 20s. And I go, I want to do this forever. It was this blend of creativity and science. Would you say that mail, you could equate mail order to what eventually became, and we now all know as like the subscription business? Well, what do you know? Um, uh, you go, because uh, I, I did two jobs where I was, uh, I did two magazines, one of which where I was doing circulation, subscription circulation. And the second one, I was you know, much more, more senior thinking about the magazine. But yes, so the things I spent 15 years on was how do I measure everything? How do I do really deep analytics on things? How about personalization? Really critical when you're doing mail order. And subscriptions. So what a weird coincidence that uh, 15 years later, I end up with a company which is doing e-commerce which is basically um, direct response on steroids. It's selling things using deep, very, very computer-driven personalization and analytics. Um, and then even a few years later, subscription. I had another more personal question from what I remember in one of the interviews that I watched in the past, God knows, month maybe. After I read the book, I was just like obsessed with you in this weird way and wanted <laughs> to just know more. Um, but you had mentioned that you met your wife at that weird job that you had in Colorado, right? Yes, correct. And what did she think about all this stuff? I mean, it seemed like you were uncertain about your career. And, you know, usually when a woman and man are in a relationship, you hope that one of them has some sort of, you know, set certainty or like some sort of like income for the future, right? Until somebody else is building. What was that like between the two of you? We often joke that it was fantastic that we met uh, back then. That we met when not only did either of us, neither of us had anything. I mean, we were both broke. Um, I had this, well, I should, I had a bushy beard, kind of looks like the two of you guys, except way, I had a, a way more, this huge Jufro on the top. I mean, it was, it was, lucky, it was, lucky, lucky you. I'm running out of hair here. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you can see what I look like. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was scary. And somehow she saw through all that. You know, maybe this guy will make something of himself. And even in the few years after that, you know, we were, as most young couples were in debt, um, you know, struggling to pay student loans and all those things. And so came through some really tough times together. We had two things happen simultaneously. We had a house burn down and we had me do a job transition. And people often say that either one of those things is what puts huge stresses on a relationship. And so I think we kind of stress tested this uh, relationship way before um, uh, Netflix came along or any of the other startups, really. Um, and so it's really been this amazing partnership because we knew each other when. And in particular, you know, she can remind me and make sure that I don't forget 
that um, despite this, any success that Netflix has had or any subsequent things have had, that I'm still that same old dork who had the goofy hat. And, uh, you know, it, I am, I'm really no fundamentally different than I was uh, back then, which was a normal person. I love that. Um, one thing that uh, I remember you talk about, and, and, I, and I love this part of the book, is, is when you're talking about, you know, I think you were applying to like a job and um, they basically turned down everybody and, and you had to do a little bit more to get the job. So when did that come along? Was that, was that after all this? Was that after working at the music publishing company or was it before? No, that was in, a, that was in college. That was, I was, again, as, I, as you heard, I was a guy who had no idea what he wanted to be. Uh, but it occurred to me that I might enjoy being uh, in advertising because uh, I really did enjoy that whole creative process with an eye towards selling things. Um, and so almost on a whim, I found out that one of the big New York agencies was coming to my campus to interview. And I said, what the hell? And I interviewed and got the call back. And it turns out, though, of course, they had gone to every single liberal arts school in America. So probably 600 people got the call back and we all did a cattle call down in uh, New York, New York did a half day and they interviewed some, interviewed us and had us watch videos. And then I made the second cut um, to come back again. And this time it was a smaller group, probably 40 people. And we spent the full day there. Um, and again, I made the cut amazingly. And now there's only four of us. And this time we are mostly meeting with senior people and interviewing all of us extensively. Um, and then they sent us um, back to wait to hear. And the next day they called me and told me that I had not gotten the job, which I was kind of crushed because I'm kind of one of those guys who assumes I can do this. What do they have that I don't have? Um, and so to not get the job was so disappointing. and it maybe took me a day or so. And then I go, this is ridiculous. Uh, what was I missing? What did I do wrong? So I figured I'd find out. And I decided to write every single person that I had met with, not just that last day, but the day before and the first day. And all basically the same letter saying, what could I do differently? What could I, what could I do to prepare myself for a job here if I wanted to apply again in six months or a year? Um, and sent all these mails off. And then about four days later, I got the call and they said, come on back down to New York. And I spent a half an hour with one of the senior VPs and he offered me the job. And the interesting thing, as you mentioned, was um, of the four of us who were all these finalists, they hadn't offered the job to any of us. That this job, which was an account executive job, was in many ways a kind of turning a no into a yes type of job. And they just wanted to see which of the four of us wouldn't take no for an answer. And I think I must have been the only one who wasn't willing to take no for an answer. It, it's a superpower. It really is. It is something that I have taught all three of my kids and they use it to amazing effect. And I mean, I seriously, and I, I'll give you a, um, I say I give you this example now. So um, all my kids went to kind of these competitive liberal arts schools, and it's very hard to get the classes you want sometimes. And um, what they would do 
and my son learned this and taught it to the other kids, and they all do it, is that you go, the class is sold out. You can't get in. So you go anyway, and you sit in the back, um, and you ask, the, and then at the end of the first class, or even beginning of the first class, the professor will go, I'm sorry, this class is full. Um, we've already taken from the wait list. Uh, we're not going to be letting anybody else in. So those of you who are just kind of waiting, hoping for a spot, I'm sorry. And three quarters of the people who were there get up and leave. And he goes, sit. And you sit. And after class, you go up and go, I know you have no space. I hope you let me just sit and audit just in case something comes up. And you come back the next day. And then you come back the next day. And then you get in. Um, and it goes, what the professor is looking for is someone who genuinely really wants to be in that class. And if you demonstrate that, and he goes, from then on, my kids never worried about getting into the classes they wanted because they knew that if they didn't get in the first try, they would always get in that way. And I could go on, I could fill up this entire podcast with stories of not taking no for an answer and how amazingly that is when you recognize that's um, the reality of how people are wired. Yeah, I love that. I think that Pat and I always discuss this. And as much as I love yeses, I love noes even more because that's where the real chase starts, right? You know, when, when a guest that we reach out to says no to us, <laughs> I love it, right? The, the, worst thing is, uh, the worst thing is if we get ignored. But I like a no because I know that that person's there. They've already responded. Now it's time to turn that no into a yes, right? And you just want to see what makes them tick, what's going to get them to the yes, because there's always a yes, right? Not having enough time, not wanting to do it. Those are bullshit reasons, right? Whether it's in business, in life, relationships, I don't care. There's always a way to get to yes as long as you work with the other party to make it happen. So I love that that's your philosophy. And you know, I'm sure that was very helpful when you were running Netflix as well. Yeah. Whenever I kind of tell this story, it's definitely, a, you know, rest in peace, my inbox, because then everyone is pounding on it. So listen, since we're talking, I got to tell one more story about the not taking no for an answer. Cause I think really if people take away only a few things, um, this is one of them. Uh, so my, my daughter kind of shares, um, my outdoors bug even more than, uh, even more than me. Um, and so she wanted to become a, a, a instructor, uh, at Knowles where I, where I was an instructor and, they changed since I was a lad. Now the age is 21 and she's 18 and she's going, Oh, it's really bummer that I can't get a job there because they don't take anyone until they're 21. And I go, well, listen, you are so more qualified than most 21 year olds. I mean, you have done three Knowles courses. You have your W your wilderness EMT. You actually were, were an intern at Knowles Patagonia for a semester. Um, why don't you, try. And I had to recuse myself. I, I'm not involved. And so she tried and it turned into, she was like the Jackie Robinson of instructors because they had a problem, which is they, they needed women to be instructors, but they needed, it was hard when women being at 21 because they aged out more quickly than the men did. Um, and so they wanted them to be younger. And so there's this huge debate over my daughter, over whether or not they could accept someone. And as an experiment, they accepted her. And so she never would have had that happen if she hadn't asked. And it's happened over and over and over again. If she had, if she had taken the first, oh, you got to be 21, wouldn't have happened. And she's gone on to be an instructor there for many years. So 
why don't we fast forward a little bit? Um, I know you were working at a company that eventually got acquired um, by Pure Atria, which was run by Reed Hastings, who's your co-founder and current CEO. Um, tell us uh, kind of how that early relationship with Reed developed. Um, I want to get into you know your your conversations on your you know morning commutes to work and all that stuff. But before we do, um, how how did you two start? You know, connecting and was it sort of immediate or was it over you know a certain amount of years? How did that? Work. It was over a certain amount of months. And I think it was lucky that way that we got a chance to know each other in a different context. Because specifically, as you mentioned, you know, Reed was had founded and was running Pure Atria, a big software company. And he acquired a small, maybe 12 person startup that myself and two friends had started. Um, and the, it was a pretty technical company. So the other 11 of them went and worked in the basement as a business unit. Uh, and Reed took me and installed me as being the head of marketing for this big company. And so I had a chance to work directly with Reed, so professionally, um, for six to seven months. And the second kind of silver lining was it turns out that Reed and I both lived in the same town, lived in Santa Cruz, California. And we began carpooling to work together. So we had a chance to establish a personal relationship as well. And this was all before even even Netflix was even an inkling in anyone's mind. And we did this for six, seven months or so. Uh, and then uh, kind of interesting happened, which is this big company, Puratria, was acquired by an even bigger company. And then the final fortuitous thing is that Reed and I were going to get fired. Or, or fired is the wrong word because it, it was basically a merger of two big companies and they didn't need another head of marketing and they didn't need another CEO. So both of us were being let go. But these being public companies, there was a six month period waiting for all the government clearances to come through. Uh, and so we had to come to work every day with realistically not a lot to do. And that's pretty much the time when I said, I'm going to start another company because I had been in five startups up to this point, this would be number six. And Reed, he didn't want to start another company. He was going to go become an educational philanthropist, but he didn't want to leave it all behind entirely. So we made this deal where he would be the angel investor. I would start and run the company, but we needed to come up with the idea together. Um, and that's what led to that six months of commuting, where basically we brainstormed ideas um, Persistently, um, every day, back and forth, 45 minutes each way. Mark, and, was there anything you were passionate about or was it just you were passionate about starting a business? That's it. I was passionate about starting a business. Uh, I did have some criteria. Um, the internet was reasonably new at this point um, and mm -hmm. e-commerce even newer. Uh, Jeff Bezos um, had already started Amazon. In fact, I think it already IPO'd Amazon, yeah. but it was only a bookstore at that point. Um, but I, um, because I had 15 years of direct marketing experience, I immediately saw how powerful that the internet could be for selling items, that the amount of inventory you could do, the amount of um, how easy you could make the search function, uh, the personalization. Uh, and so my criteria it had to involve selling something on the internet. And if there was personalization, big plus. And so not surprisingly, most of the ideas that I was pitching Reed in the car 
were selling things on the internet with personalization. You know, like one of the ones was, um, you, uh, and I talk in more detail about the, the book, was about a personalized shampoo that you would cut off a lock of your hair, you would mail it to us, we'd have our team of ace hair scientists, form whatever that meant, formulate uh, a proprietary shampoo just for you, and you would subscribe to it. There, By the way, that, see that that angle, the subscription angle in too. Yeah, I still think that's an excellent idea because you know, and I wish you started it because I wouldn't have lost my hair like I did. Um, but you know, <laughs> who knows? Maybe somebody will come up with a more uh, personalized shampoo in the future. You can invest in that. Yeah, if they, if they require you to send in a lock of your hair, that's what's going to yeah. challenge me. Yeah, you and I are we're we're, we're pretty much screwed <laughs> on that. <idea. laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this one might actually work better for us. Uh, maybe, anyways. That is the other idea was a personalized custom blend of dog food, where mm. we would formulate a dog food for your pet's breed, size, age, gender, activity level, climate, whatever, and then you'd subscribe to that. So that also internet selling, personalization, and subscription. Right. Um, and so, and another one was. Uh, looking at categories other than books and an obvious one was video, which was an, you know, $8 billion category, but that scared us because of uh, Amazon because we knew it eventually they were not going to be books. And so we then began thinking maybe video rental, um, also an $8 billion category. And because of all my experience in the mail order business, I knew a tremendous amount about shipping, about we had pioneered uh, next day shipping when I was at Mac Warehouse and Micro Warehouse. Um, uh, and I knew how that worked with FedEx and with UPS. Um, and so we said, maybe we can make that work. But that too was deeply flawed because at the time, video came on those VHS cassettes, which were you know big and clunky. Mark, when I was reading this book, like literally every page, I started to have anxiety for you. And I was like, <laughs> God, please don't do that. No, oh my God. It's like, how is he going to deal with that? How is he going to deal with that? How is he going to deal with that? I mean, what the hell was it that just kept you going? I mean, like every day, like even after you started the company, it just seemed like it was a disaster, you know? And I don't mean that in a bad, I mean, like in a negative way, really, but it just seemed like there was no way to overcome it, even from the ideation point. It was like, well, that's impossible. Well, that's impossible. What in your mind was keeping you going? Well, this really comes down to what was the motivation for being an entrepreneur. And you've never once heard me say that, oh, I was always wanted to be an entrepreneur because I wanted to be rich or I wanted to be famous or I... That back when I started, those weren't things that anyone knew or could talk about. And unfortunately, now it has become this glorified thing where people get in it for the wrong reasons. But nevertheless, I've always been in it for the same reason, which is I love the puzzle. I love the problem solving. I love that coming to work and sitting around the table with the smart people solving the most complex puzzles there are. And that's what keeps you going um, is that you're pretty sure there's a solution and your job is to find it and you're testing things and they're not working, but they give you these glimmers of the next thing to test. And that excites you. 
And that never goes away. I mean, yes, you go through dry periods. You certainly go through periods where you're discouraged or disillusioned. But you always have this belief that eventually, like, it's like the, I don't know, it's like the New York Times crossword puzzle on Saturday. Like, uh, I trust that there's probably a solution, but man, I'm not sure I can do it. Yeah. But if I work at it long enough, maybe I will. But and it's it's like that, and it's still fun. It's the way it, it, you. It's the it's why it's why someone like me does it. Right. So when that idea for for Netflix came to you, how far into it were you looking? Like, did you have this grand vision of disrupting home video and like just taking over the whole screen, <laughs> or or was it a little bit smaller than that? No, it was considerably smaller than that. I mean, we picked a big category. You know, we picked $8 billion category, not because we go, well, it's $8 billion or bust. We picked it because it re- leaves huge room for error. You can screw up. You can be minuscule. You can get a lot wrong. And still, if you get just a fraction of the market, it's probably enough to sustain you while you figure it out. And like early on, and I still have this document someplace at one of the pep talks for the company. Uh, I set this goal, which I thought was big and hairy and audacious, of being a top 10 video chain. Uh, or, or even be, initially, we want to be as big as a single big blockbuster store, which was $750,000 you know, a year. It's about an average blockbuster back then. But that was, that was absurd. So y- you never envision you know, well, how are we ever going to get the rights to uh, Orange is the New Black? Or, you know, you're, you're just purely thinking about the problem that's in front of you. And the problem in front of us was how do we build an e-commerce site that even works? How do we get people to rent video? How do we uh, get started? And what did you do to get started? I mean, like you obviously, there was a lot of stuff that needed to go on. I know that Christina and Tay were big parts of that process. And how did you even get people to join you? Like, I mean... You're at this point, how old were you? Like 39 or 40? 38. 38, yeah. And, you know, you're, you've done a lot in your life. You've found a little bit of success selling companies. You know what you're doing. But how do you get somebody or some buddies to trust to come along on this wild journey of essentially trying to, you know, beat Blockbuster and beat Amazon to the game? And, I mean, it's, it's a wild idea. I mean, chances are it won't work. How do you convince someone to be like, you know what? Leave your safe job there and come along with me. We're going to go on this crazy ride and we might fail and we probably will. I mean, what, what does that look like? Um, it's, there's two things to it. The first one, as you said, I was 38 and I had done a bunch of this before and I had accumulated a bunch of people who I knew had the uh, temperament and ability to do this. I mean, I don't know if you, you ever seen the movie, the must in the movie, the Blues Brothers, you know, no Belushi and Aykroyd. Oh my God, children, children! I tell you, <laughs> what's the one with the Kyrie Irving, uh, Uncle Buck is what it's called? Where he, anyway, it's the classic buddy movie where they start out by going around and getting the band back together again. You know, you're driving and trying to convince each person to come and do this one last game or play this one final gig. What about and I had the same thing? One in 60 seconds is but, a good one. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yes, exactly. Another perfect one. That's right. They're all like the guy going, no, I gave that. I gave up that game 15 years ago. 
oh, come on, no one can crack safes the way you can crack safes or whatever it is. Yeah, it was like that. And that's how you're recruiting your team. You're going around to the people you've worked with before who you know have, have it in them to do this type of stuff and saying, leave your job, come and do this. This will be so cool. We'll, we'll have a great time doing it and we can really change the world. But then part of it is you have to bring other people around to your way of thinking. And part of that is having, I mean, the most powerful force in the world is optimism and conviction. And it's not bullshit. It's, it's real. You genuinely believe you're going to do something special. You are going to take this apparently insurmountable problem and figure it out. And wouldn't it be fun to be part of the team that does that? And that's an amazingly powerful force for a for recruiting people to come join you on your somewhat um, irrational journey. I want to talk about this concept of focus in startups because you know it's really important. Is and and sacrificing that short term growth for or that short-term gain for the long-term growth, which is essentially what was happening was you saw this long-term vision of, of rentals being much more profitable, but you had to essentially focus and cut off this short-term DVD selling business. So, you, you know, you start experimenting and, and it's not doing as well as initially as you thought it would. Did it seem like a failure to you? Like, was that tough to deal with that, you know, that, that balance and, and really focusing on that long-term? Yeah. I mean, I think it's in fact probably the hardest business decision that people who are in mature businesses have to face every day, which is balancing your current business versus your future business, uh, especially when they conflict. Um, and that was what was happening to us at the beginning was we had, we were doing two things simultaneously. We were trying to be a DVD rental company. And as a lark had begun selling DVDs only to find out that the sales, as you pointed out, was 99% of our business. And that rental sucked, that no one did it. And if they did it once, they didn't do it again. Um, And what the revelation was that you couldn't do both of them at the same time well, that it was confusing to people to come out and say, we sell DVDs and we rent DVDs. The checkout process was complicated and cumbersome. Operations was tricky. Even reading our analytics, uh, devising our tests, everything was being made harder by essentially being in two businesses simultaneously. And we came to that decision point that so many businesses come to where you have to make the bet. And you either say, we're going to focus this business on the businesses paying 99% of our salaries and paying 99% of the rent. In fact, is paying everything, but doesn't have a future. Uh, Will slowly but surely diminish and eventually go away. Or we can bet everything on this unproven piece that shows no signs right now of working, but if we can get it to work is Greenfield and could be huge, could transform the way people do something. And boy, that is a terrifying decision to make once you realize those things are mutually exclusive. And most companies don't have the courage or the ability to make that call. They stick with their old business way too long. And because they do, they never put the focus and attention on the business they should. And we, to our credit, had the guts to do it. 
to walk away in one single day from selling DVDs so we could focus everything we had on renting. And there is nothing scarier than in a single day coming to work the next day and and having your revenues be 1% of what they were the previous day. And Mark, one of the things that maybe people don't know who haven't read the book yet, and again, they should definitely do that, uh, is that, you know, along the time you finally came up with this idea for Netflix, uh, Reed Hastings did, you know, invest in the company. If I'm not mistaken, it was 1.9 million. Originally, it was two, I think, and then he took the 100,000 away, you said, and you had to go and call your mom and a few friends and family and finally made it happen. So I'm glad you did. Um, what was Reed's involvement early on? And then, you know, also kind of touch upon the point that the uh, the Amazon meeting happened and uh, what happened there to essentially have you guys change your mindset about where the business should be headed. Um, at the beginning, everything was as it was planned, which is that Reed did write the check for $1.9 million. We did go out and raise money from angel uh, friends and family, you know, my, my mom included. Um, and Reed did go back to school. Um, I gathered up the Merry Band and we spent six months building the uh, website, getting every DVD available, getting content, getting some deals with DVD manufacturers to put coupons in the boxes. And we launched, I mean, happy anniversary. We launched uh, exactly a week ago, 22 years ago, April 14th, 1998. Um, and, uh, And so Reed was still happily at school. You know, we would talk once a week. He'd occasionally pop in after work or after school, check how things were going. And then about three months in, summer of 1998, we did get that call uh, from Jeff Bezos uh, asking if we were willing to come on up to Seattle to chat. And it was not a big secret, you know, what that chat was going to be about, because as I mentioned before, they were just selling books, but it was no secret. You know, he had made no secret that he wanted to be the everything store. Um, And we were pretty sure next was going to be video and music. And so we go, okay, he probably wants to think about buying us. So Reed and I flew up to Seattle and uh, went in to see the Amazon offices. And what was surprising is that we expected to find this gleaming temple, the, uh, the, because, you know, this was the paragon of e-commerce, the golden boy, um, the visionary. And we were like wandering through these grimy crime infested areas of Seattle with, you know, broken glass on the sidewalks and people shooting up in the doorways. We're going, this is where the Paragon of e-commerce is headquartered. And in fact, going in the building, it was in an old warehouse and there was desks crammed everywhere under the stairs and pizza boxes piled up and people four cubes to a four desks to an office. (laughs) But uh, we had the meeting with Jeff, and it was actually great because you could almost see that he was right on that cusp of starting to go, wow, this is becoming some real responsibility. He was losing a little bit of that founder, new business excitement. And talking to us, you could almost see him reliving those days at the very beginning because both companies kind of shared this thing, which we didn't realize until we spoke, that... Um, when they had uh, orders come in, every time an order came in, they would ring a bell. And we had set it up so whenever orders came in, we rang a bell. 
Um, and we, Jeff and I go, oh, that's pretty cool. Connected on that. We talked about our the weird names we had before we both arrived, the, the final names for the companies were going to be. But anyhow, on the way out, the CFO walked us out and she said, uh, you know, listen, this is interesting. And if it happens, when it has some expectations, it'll probably be in the low eight figures, um, meaning uh, very low eight figures. So we figured that probably means 14 to $16 million. And that wouldn't have been a bad outcome for someone who's been in, working on this for about a year. And I owned about a third of the company at that point. But at the other hand, Reed and I kind of felt like we had solved all the big problems. It was way too early. So in one way, this whole meeting was a validation because this was the leader of e-commerce taking an idea that everyone else had told us that'll never work and was saying he was interested in us. And his opinion counted more than a hundred of other people's. But it was also this commitment ceremony for Reed and I, which is, do we have an out? Do we really want to do this or do we not? And we decided it was, we'd just gotten the engine to turn over, as I say, and didn't want to give somebody else the keys. And thus began a, the, the the real uh, the real plunge, um, and that ended up being a long uh, you know it, it took us another year and a half to finally come up with the repeatable scalable business model. So it was a long, a lot of times you look back and say, what the hell were we thinking? So a couple of years later, or that year and a half, two years later, um, I think it was when you ended up meeting with Blockbuster, right? Um, you flew out, you chartered this $20,000 jet and had to fly out and get meet them in person. And at this time, if I remember correctly, um, you know, the business, like the financials were, were still not great. You were, you were losing cash and, and burning through it and, and you wanted to, to sell the company essentially, right? Um, is that what, what what it was like? What was that conversation like? I know ultimately, uh, Blockbuster uh, didn't end up taking the deal, which I think was for fifty million dollars, <laughs> which is one of the biggest mistakes I think in just you know history. Um, so tell us how that felt. And I know you know coming from you, someone that doesn't like hearing no for an answer. What was going through your mind, and 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 what did you do after that? So so what you have to realize is that we finally felt we had cracked the code. I mean, it, it had taken us a year and a half, but we finally had figured out a repeatable, scalable model, something that people would do and continue to do and would, could, would pay us for and pay us more than it cost to provide them that service. Um, but it was a complicated model. Um, it's the model that if you are still on the DVD service, you would know today, which is that it was no due dates, no late fees, unlimited rentals, and a subscription. So it was so complicated that we, again, drawing on my direct marketing and magazine subscription background, had put positioned as first month free. And then at the end of the first month, if you didn't cancel, you automatically rolled over and you began paying month to month, which of course now is like the model for every single SaaS company in the world. Um, but I think we were one of the first people to apply it to um, the internet and software. But it worked really, really well, and it took off. But the downside of a first month free is that you accumulate all of your acquisition cost in month one. And because you're giving away the first month of service, it's a lot. And every month, 
you get a little bit and eventually you recover that acquisition cost and then it goes positive. But what it means ironically is the more successful you are, the more cash it takes because the more first month freeze you have to fulfill. And then to add insult to injury, this was all accelerating in the summer of 2000, which was right when the dot-com bubble burst. And the willingness of VCs to back up a dump truck full of dollars and pour it into your driveway all of a sudden turned into them speeding past on the highway, pretending they couldn't see you. Um, And we were screwed. And that was what led to this meeting with Blockbuster, which was this terrible feeling that we finally, now two and a half years in, we're there. We figured it out. It's taking off. We can't afford it nor do we have access to outside capital to help us. And that was that the only alternative was Blockbuster. Um, and you're right. We flew to Blockbuster. We pitched them to join the companies, um, you know, that we would run the online, they'd run the stores, we'd find the synergy. And they said no. And flying home, it was a pretty dramatic moment because I had hoped it had taken us months to get this meeting. And when they finally said, yes, similar to how you feel when you finally get a guest to agree to come on the podcast, you go, oh, problem solved. And I was sure this was it. It made so much sense. This was going to be the, you know, the deus ex machina, the hand of God that just plucks us out of our terrible situation. And instead they had said no. And worse, they were going to compete with us. So there was no easy way out. There was no end run. There was no secret passageway. That, you know, as my, my dad sometimes says, the only way out is through. And we were not only going to have to survive on our own, we have to survive on our own with them breathing down our, our backs. And that was probably the moment when Netflix had its um, back to the wall the most. But were you like afraid that like it, it just, they would, totally come and crush you now that you were in this like predicament and, and, or, or was it something that just fueled this fire in you that you're like, there's no way they're going to compete with us and win. Like we're going to win out and they don't, they don't even know it yet. No, uh, it's a combination of the two. You are, you are, I guess sobered is the best, um, the best way to do it is that the other face of this incredible optimism that I have, this sense that I'll figure this out one way or another, is occasionally you run into a brick wall. Um, and that's what it felt like. I could see no visible means that there was the alternatives were to stop growing, which is kind of like death in a startup. The alternatives is what you lay everybody. I mean, I couldn't even envision how to get out. And so, yes, you're incredibly discouraged. But it doesn't take long for the wheels to begin humming again. Oh, here's some things we could try. Maybe we could do this. Maybe we can get money from here. Um, and little by little, you begin to scrap and craft a, a plan. Um, and uh, in our case, the, you know, it, it, it did require shifting our focus a little bit. Um, but you know, eventually, we managed to find a way to get through that moment and then really kind of, I mean, listen, it's, you're never done. Whenever you crest one hill, there's an even bigger one behind it. But yeah, you put that one behind you and then all of a sudden you face an even bigger threat from somebody else. 
And Mark, one of the things that I you know truly envy about you, but I'm also admired by, is that you've just been punched so many times, right? I mean, like one of the moments that really stands out to me, you know, from your story is that moment that Reed Hastings came into the office that night, asked to talk to you, and basically said, you know what, you're not doing a very good job of leading this company. I'm going to step in and help you out, right? Essentially, I'm, par- I'm paraphrasing, so I don't ruin the whole drama uh, in, that you've written about. Um, but, you know. You're going to make me relive this, go through my uh, post traumatic stress disorder. How did that make you feel? Because, I mean, just when I was reading it, I was like, I, I mean, I just felt so bad for you. But at the same time, I knew that you knew he was right. And I knew that you knew this was the best for the company. But how do you? I mean, how wh- how do you just allow that to happen? You built this thing like it's your baby, and he wasn't there for the first year or so, and here he is telling you, "I'm going to do it better, or we got to do it together." It helps to understand Reed and my relationship, which is that one of the things that made us connect is that we're both extremely honest with each other, and with most, you know, we're pretty blunt. We don't waste a lot of time on niceties. We don't shade the truth. We certainly don't avoid delivery of bad news to spare feelings. Um, it's one of the things that I really loved about Reed the moment I began working with him, and I think he appreciated it in me as well. We saw that in each other. So when Reed did poke his head into my office that evening and say, we have to talk, and sat down and began delivering this message that in some ways he was kind of losing confidence in my leadership. I knew I had to take that very seriously, that this was not power play. This was not ulterior motive. This was him genuinely believing that our business might be in trouble if something didn't happen. And then more particularly, it was judgment. And he was worried that some of the decisions I was making were fine at the scale we were at, but he was concerned that as we got bigger and things moved more quickly, that the effect of even small miscalculations would be dramatically multiplied. That unless we had flawless execution, we wouldn't make it. Uh, And at first, as he was kind of delivering this kind of message to me, I was my head was spinning because I was wondering, is he going to fire me? And he had more stock than I did. He legitimately could have power played me out. But what I realized he was saying was something very different. What he was saying was that he should come in, join the company full time, and we should run the company together. Uh, him as CEO and me as president. Um, and that his argument was, regardless of what's happening now with you, it's hard to argue with the fact that having two of us doing this wouldn't give the company even a bigger chance of success. And he was right. Uh, You couldn't argue with that. But what made it particularly um, difficult for me was that it really required me to evaluate my my own dreams. Because in some ways... You know, my dream was to be the CEO of a successful company, which is what everyone who kind of starts a company envisions. But what you realize is once you get a couple years in, uh, it's not 
your dream anymore. It's shared. It's shared by every person you convince to come work with you. It's certainly shared with the VCs and other and, and your mom who has given you money. It's even shared with the customers who you're now delivering something to and you have an obligation to keep doing the best job you can. And so you realize you've got to separate this dream into two things. That is it the dream of me being the CEO or is it the dream of having a successful company? And what do I do when those are potentially in conflict? And this is not the kind of decision you can, you know, boom. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's hard. And I, after Reed left later that evening, I did sit by myself for a long time, you know, as the lights kind of grew dark and by myself in the office thinking through, what does this mean for the company? What does this mean for me? How do I explain this to my employees? What happens now? Um, and uh, is this really what's best for the company? And I went home and, you know, and my wife and I sat outside in our deck and had a bottle of wine and talked it over. And, you know, I knew it was not going to be easy. And I knew that I would have a hard time going forward with some of the aspects of it. But I knew that fundamentally, this was the right thing to do. And looking back on the decision to have Reed come in as CEO and for me to move over and be the president and run the company together was in many ways probably the best decision I made in the entire time I was with the company. Uh, and for one reason, those next two or three years when we ran the company together were in many ways kind of the renaissance at Netflix. So many of the big innovations that came out came that happened that were so formative for Netflix happened in that period. And then certainly, gosh, looking at what's happened with Reed running the company since I've left in the last 15 years, most unbelievable um, leadership of almost any company in the United in the world. Um, so, so I'm, I'm pretty pleased with, yeah. with that call. And we often hear, you know, the stories of, or I guess the distinction between a founder, the, the person who starts a company and gets, gets the ball rolling in those early days of just hustle and bustle. And then the, the more traditional sort of CEO type that comes in and, and is able to, to lead a, a large organization with thousands of thousands of people and not to take anything away from Reed or you. And, and I'm sure that, you know, you have both, both sides, but was that the kind of case? Was it that, that you're, you, you saw yourself um, or in hindsight, saw you, see yourself as more of the, the founder and then, you know, um, Reed was more like an operator or, or was it different than that? It's different than that. And there's two different things to talk about here. Um, and I'll talk about myself first, but then remind me, because I do want to at least close it by mentioning, talking about how Reed fits into this. But, um, you, you know, I was extremely lucky in my life because I figured something out pretty early. Um, and I figured out what I love doing and I figured out what I'm good at. And most people never figure out those two things. And for me, they were the same. They were early stage companies. I love that. I love the uncertainty. I love the paths where you can't tell what's around the corner. I love the discovery and exploration. I love building the teams. I love the whole culture building. And um, immodestly, I'm pretty good at it. I just have some of this weird talent of being able to recognize the one thing that if I got that right, 
all the rest of the stuff matter doesn't matter. And being able to focus on it when there's everything else is screaming for attention. Um, I can inspire confidence in other people, all those things. Um, but what was happening at Netflix and happens in every company is if you're successful, the nature of the job changes. And at Netflix, that happened. The problems changed. The type of talent we were able to bring in to address those problems changed. The resources we had, especially post-IPO, to deal with those problems changed. And you quickly realize that even though you love the company, um, the things you're doing, you don't necessarily enjoy that much. And more importantly, you're not really that good at it. That the things a company needs when they're small are very different than what it needs when it's bigger. And the role of a CEO when it's small is very different than the role of a CEO when it's bigger. And I'm totally comfortable saying I'm, I'm, I'm a really good early stage company guy. I'm a really bad late stage company guy. Do not hire me to run a 10,000 person company because I will screw it up royally and will have a miserable time. But I'm happy as a clam and a really early stage company. Reed is different. Reed is an exceptionally rare person of which there's probably less than 10 in the universe who are exceptionally gifted early stage entrepreneurs and exceptionally talented um, late stage um, entrepreneurs. Um, and I put him in the same category as a Jeff Bezos, um, as a... Uh, Steve Jobs, uh, Bill maybe. Gates, as a Steve Jobs, uh, maybe Elon Musk, but you know, there's not uh, as a Richard Branson. There just aren't that many people who can do it as company scale and read as demonstrated he can. Which is yet, I mean, he he's a better early stage entrepreneur than me, and and immeasurably better late stage CEO than me. And Mark, we have a bunch of questions from people that have been sending us questions that we would love to share with you if you have a few more minutes. Um, you know, has it been bittersweet to see what has come of Netflix after you've left? And if so, you know, how are your feelings about that and not being a part of it? And I know you mentioned you don't want to be a part of a big company or you just wouldn't do well. But looking back, I mean, how does this make you feel all the success that Netflix has achieved? Like, do I regret it? No. And uh, the answer is zero. Uh, well, zero is too strong. Maybe two parts per million, perhaps. So is there, would it be fun uh, to be sitting around that table um, solving some of the problems they're wrestling with now? Of course. God, wouldn't that be amazing? But on every single other axis, I have no regrets about having left. Um, I am the luckiest guy you're ever going to meet. Um, I got a chance to see the dream I had become real. I had a chance to build that up through the period of which I was really talented at doing that and got to see it live on. Um, I've certainly continued to reap some of the financial success from the company. I've had a chance to watch it uh, grow and mature. But more importantly, since I've left, I've gotten to spend my time doing the thing that I love and I'm good at, which is work with early stage companies. I mean, I've since gone on to really help found another company, which was phenomenally fun. I get a chance to mentor other early stage entrepreneurs. I'm helping them make their dreams come true or help them ideally have the type of success I've had. 
And, it more, and I get to come into work every day, sit around the table with really smart people and solve really cool problems. And then I get to go home at night. Um, I have time to pursue my passions, to do my mountaineering, to do my kayaking, to do my surfing, which I had not enough time to do when I was uh, building and growing Netflix. I have a time to spend with my wife and my family. I mean, I have, I have a great balance in my life. So in the, on the whole, no, I'm, I'm a remarkably lucky. Um, no regrets uh, whatsoever. It certainly has worked out um, tremendously well. One question I had was um, when after the company went public, you know, that IPO day, um, you kind of talk about your mindset at the time and, and that you never had to work another day in your life. Like you were set for life. Like you were, you could do whatever you want. You didn't have to worry about money, but it wasn't about money for you. It was, it was more about, um, utility usefulness. Can you elaborate on that? Like what, what was that? What did you mean by that? Well, I, I, I was fortunate. I grew up in a reasonably affluent town. Um, and so my parents had a lot of very wealthy friends. And so early on, I just either dispelled of or never was inflicted with this disease that says that money equates to happiness. So I've never pursued money for any pursued money. We, we I had so saw so many people who were so rich and so miserable. You know, marriages falling apart, kids wouldn't talk to them, self hatred, and they were rich. And so quickly that dispels the fact that boy, if I could only have money, I'd be happy. Which is is. Nice. And it is about the utility of what you're doing. The IPO is a kind of a different thing because that is kind of this carrot that's dangled out in front of every startup and, and not without some merit to it, you know, because when a VC venture capitalist offers to give you $50 million or in Netflix's case, $150 million, I think cumulatively by the time we were done, they are not doing that because, oh, we'd love to see Mark pursue his dream or, oh, we, we think this is a one. No, they have a very, very clear outcome, which is they want that $150 million back multiplied by 10, please. And the only way you can do that is with a liquidity event, you know, a sale or an IPO. And your employees, the same thing. They've, uh, they've come and worked their butts off for you partly for their salary, but a larger part for a chance to share in possible success in the form of stock options. And those only have value in a liquidity event. And so part of your role as a CEO or any founder is to hopefully bring a company to that point. So it's one of these things you're working toward, working toward, working toward, and then the day is there. And for me, it was a little bit of an anticlimax because, you know, I'm sure you've all seen those images you know, the, the founders all huddled on the balcony at the stock exchange and the ticker tape and they're ringing the bell and everyone's clapping and cheering. Well, that's the New York Stock Exchange. So wrong place because we went public in NASDAQ. And in NASDAQ, that moment takes place in a windowless server room in Weehawken, New Jersey or something like that. So instead for the IPO, I was on the trading floor at Merrill Lynch, which is basically just an office with desks and guys on phones. Um, and you wait around, waiting for them to find the price. And then finally, an hour and a half after trading, after the day starts, you see your ticker symbol scroll across with a price next to it. And everyone claps and you pour some champagne. And then you go, all right, now, now what? And so 
but for me, more of that moment was the afterwards. Like I had my eight-year-old, my son, who was eight years old at the time with me uh, for the IPO. And I already knew where we were going after the IPO. And so we were in the taxi heading downtown. This is in New York, of course. And um, that was kind of when the out-of-body experience happened. Because I'm in this grimy cab. I'm not like in like a limo or something. Um, and I'm watching all the people. It's New York. It's this huge tapestry of people. And you're going, God, every single person here has to work. But... I don't. And how should I feel about that? And, but it wasn't flooding over me this sense of relief or because I go, I, I want to work. And I know that on Monday, I'm flying back to the office and I'll go back into work and I'll probably not stop doing that. I like what I do. Um, and the same token, I'm going, okay, I'm wealthy, I guess, but I'm not like, on my way to get a big steak dinner or some irrationally expensive bottle of champagne or something like that. I'm on my way to take my eight-year-old Californian son uh, to famous Ray's to get a slice of New York pizza, uh, which I grew up on and he's never had. And the, I think partway through that drive, I decided, no, I'm, I'm exactly in the right place. I'm totally fine going back to work. I'm totally fine. I'm going to get pizza. Um, this is this is enough for me. I love that. Another question that we have from uh, one of our listeners is, what was your frame of mind when you started Netflix? And they asked because it's recession time now. So they're looking for some relevance uh, as to how they should position their mindset uh, when trying to come up with an idea and start a company. Well, I'll have you do a little thought experiment. Um, so when Netflix started, uh, we were nothing. You know, we rented DVDs by mail. Our competition, and the reason that everyone told me that'll never work, was Blockbuster. They have 60,000 employees. They have 9,000 stores. You could throw a stone and hit a Blockbuster. And I'm launching a DVD rental business. Now, how entirely irrational is that? What had happened if... Then what happens now happened then. All of a sudden, all the stores close. All of a sudden, you can't go out. All of a sudden, the only way to get entertainment, you can't even stream it. The only way is to get it mailed to you. What would have happened to the business then? And the answer is probably would have been a remarkably positive outcome. And the answer is you never know what positive things can come from difficult circumstances. Um, and I'm not sugarcoating the difficult circumstances. These are, this is horrendous. But I'm saying there's always things that we can take away. Um, some people believe, and I must confess I'm one of them, that some of the strongest companies are founded in times of difficulty, not in times of affluence. Uh, because they're really required to think very carefully about what they do. Resources are more precious. Um, customers are more wary. You have to get it right. It's a little bit less uh, forgiving for making your early mistakes, which means you're more careful about it. I think all things being equal, I wouldn't choose to do something in a times of difficulty, but I wouldn't be afraid of it um, either. You know, I think the bigger lesson, and I'm not sure when, uh, you know, 
what people take away from this, but that there's silver linings, you know, and that there's people who are obviously families torn apart, people losing their lives, people losing their jobs. Um, but there's thing, other things that are happening that I hope we can hold on to the good things that happen. I mean, I travel, I used, I was traveling obsessively almost, you know, probably three weeks out of four or four out of five with the book release and the speaking that I do and board meetings. And now I'm home and I've slept in my own bed for like 40 nights in a row, which is the most I've done in like 10 years. And I love it. And I'm saying to myself, you only live your life once. And, uh, how do you make sure you're spending your time on the things you really should be spending your time on? And this is kind of giving me a reset. And I hope that a lot of other people who can get through this okay can use it as a reset to think about the things that are important to them and get some things right. What's something that since leaving Netflix um, that you've seen them do where you're like, let's go team. Like, I love that. <laughs> By far and away was Quickster. I don't know whether you remember the Quickster uh, issue, but uh, Netflix decided to, this is probably six, seven years ago. God, I can't remember when. They decided to split off their DVD rental company into a separate company from their streaming company. And they really screwed it up. They <laughs> did it very poorly, but how they priced it and how they communicated it, and it was a debacle and the stock collapsed. But I saw exactly what was happening. This was the exact same focus that we did at the very beginning when we decided to walk away from selling DVDs to focus everything on rental. They were recognizing here were two things that were very, very complicated to do at the same time, that one was distracting from the other, that one was the past and one was the future, and they were splitting them in part. And I thought I was big shit for having the courage to do this when we had, you know, million, a million dollars, millions of customers, you know, a hundred thousand customers, they were doing it when they had tens of millions of customers. And that's when I said, oh, bravo, that was courage at its finest. And it turns out they screwed up the implementation, but the tactic was exactly right. So here we have on Instagram, on Instagram stories, we had asked a question right before the podcast about if somebody has questions for you. And some guy named Logan, I think you know him really well. Uh, <laughs> asked, uh, two the first one is a very simple answer. It said, which of your kids do you like most? <laughs> <laughs> and the second one, uh, I'll, save you, I'll save you some troubles and you won't have to answer that one. But the second <laughs> one is interesting. Would you rather fight one a horse-sized horse duck or a thousand duck-sized <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i can't believe he's asked that question uh, and so if i don't know if you recognize that question it's a very famous reddit question they ask in all the amas and i did a reddit ama a few months ago and i prepared for that i had this long answer about what i would answer for which one i prefer to fight and i could and I, they didn't ask Damn them. Reddit didn't. And now I ask it here and I don't remember what my brilliant answer was. So I don't know. I think the answer is the I'd probably rather fight the uh, horse sized ducks than the uh, duck sized horse. Interesting. Why? I wonder, but why? 
why why a battle against a thousand and a battle against the one? I mean, <laughs> you have you have experience fighting Blockbuster, right? Which was one company, and now you're going against yeah. like thousands of people. I mean, what's the mentality behind that? Maybe that's it. I I did I was able to take down the horse sized duck. But the uh, the idea of having a thousand little duck sized horses coming at you, oh my god, that's just terrifying. That reminds me of like <laughs> Night of the Living Dead. You 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 kick, kick twenty of them away, and then another sixty take their place. <laughs> I love thanks, I love a good thank, thanks, Logan. Appreciate it. <laughs> um, okay, so I know you always say your favorite movie is Pulp Fiction, but it's actually not. So, and then you do mention in the book what your favorite movie is, but has it changed? I know. I think you said it was Doc Hollywood. No, it is. I st- I, I'm still really fond of that of of Doc Hollywood. Um, you know, it's it, it, asking me a favorite movie is very similar to asking which of my children is my favorite because, of course, you like them all for different reasons. <laughs> uh, but Doc Hollywood speak it speaks to me, uh, and I th- and I think that that's the ultimate goal of a movie is it should make you emotionally resonate um, and feel and think and doc hollywood's a corny dumb movie but um it makes me yearn for a simpler time which i think is kind of an interesting uh lesson for actually right now when we're all kind of having being forced to live in some ways a simpler time the fact that you've been obviously helping a lot of young entrepreneurs and have been able to pursue your passion and all that stuff is amazing where do you see there being opportunity in in this new decade right i mean who would have thought that we would have started this decade with you know, coronavirus and this, this, you know, global pandemic. Uh, but letting go of that for a second, although it's hard, what do you see as this next 10 years looking like? And a lot can happen in 10 years, obviously. But, you know, where should people start focusing their attention to? What should people start studying more? And what should they learn more as opposed to study, I assume? I think it hasn't changed. I mean, I think there's huge opportunity. I still think we're still in the early um, years of uh, technical innovation. I mean, even the internet is uh, brand new in some ways. You know, right now, the only real ways you access it is on your uh, your phone or on your computer or maybe your watch. But it's a little bit in your car. But we're just seeing the beginning of that that rolling out. Huge advances, obviously, in AI and robotics. But I don't really care about all that stuff. I'm not a technologist. But what excites me is that it's getting easier and easier for people to take their ideas and make them real. You know, I, I taught in the book. You tell this. I tell a story about the six months it took to build a simple e-commerce website. At the time, from the idea to the validation was six months and a million dollars. What's happening now is because there's so much technology available in the cloud, on your watch, on your phone, that you can try things in minutes for no money at all. The time from idea to validation is measured in minutes or hours rather than in months. Uh, and that just means that the limits on what we dream up and may be able to try out is, is really, really slipping. And that, I think, is encouraging. That means pretty much anybody who has an idea can figure out pretty quickly whether it's a good one or a bad one. I'm, I'm, I think the next 10 years are going to be really exciting. And I guess a little bit about the book. I mean, how hard was it to transition from being this founder of what became a major company to an author of your story? Well, I, I've, been, I've been writing my whole life. I mean, I was a direct marketing guy and you spend so much of your time writing and you're 
doing in, in direct marketing writing, especially you're doing something what I call remote empathy, which is you have to imagine how your words are going to be perceived by someone on the other end, how it's going to make them feel, what it might make them want to do. Will it anger them, sadden them? Um, and so I've been practicing persuasive writing for 40 years. Um, what was new for me about writing the book was there is a structure and framework in science to book writing, which I found fascinating. I'm a nerd about everything I get into. I want to learn about make coffee. I go deep. And the same thing with the book. I really wanted to understand the process. So for me, it was both the art and the science. But the best part about it was really just reliving the stories. Um, I wrote this book. The events I tell about in the book, I'm writing about 16 years after they happened. And that lets you put them in perspective to really recognize where were we lucky? Where were we smart? Where did we screw up? How close did we come to dying? You can talk to the people, the blockbuster people and see where they were, what they were thinking. Um, you can talk to the other employees, their impressions of the time. Um, it's a really fun process of getting in your head a new view of something that you actually lived through and thought you knew well. And the exciting thing about the book is getting to share that with people and, you know, see their reactions. You know, as you guys know, I reveal my email address on page 96, I think it is. And it's been fantastic having people all uh, mm -hmm. write me with their uh, in-the-minute impressions of how they felt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Page ninety six for sure. You're you're dead on. <laughs> um, I'm good. I mean, I, I mean, I can ask you so much more, but I know you're a busy guy uh, that has a lot to do and a lot of book promotions to do and to, to really get this going. And I'm very glad that you actually did write this book because you know I know Pat feels the same way, and a lot of our friends who read this book, it, it gives you a hope that really the impossible is possible it's literally called that yeah. will never work which yeah. is something that you heard yeah. often throughout your journey so for those who are not hearing the most positive you know uh you know feedback for their business it's not the biggest deal um you know if you have this firm belief that it's going to work and you know it's going to work then and and having that conviction i think it's i think it's yeah. a great book for anyone who's for sure interested in starting a business or, mm -hmm. or has started a business well, th thanks. And if uh, obviously if people want to rush out and buy it, I would be delighted. Uh, and of course, I, I, I will do my own personal self-promotional shout out. And if you want to read stuff that, I, that I've written in a considerably shorter form, um, I, you can come to the website, which is markrandolph.com. Um, or if an even shorter form, you can find my semi-coherent ramblings on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah. And we'll link, we'll link it in the description. Mark, thank you so much. We wish you all the best, especially during this period. Uh, stay healthy, stay safe, and hopefully we can meet uh, in person someday. We'll come up to yes, Santa Cruz. thank you very much for the time. Yes, absolutely. You're welcome. Anytime. Love it. Right, Mark. Take, Take it care. easy. Have a good one. All right, thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you.